Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Today I'm really excited to be joined by Michelle Flynn of Michelle Flynn Coaching. Welcome Michelle. Michelle's a qualified CBT trainer and integrative nutritional health coach. So very much taking um, a holistic approach to well-being and well-being in the workplace. But Michelle, I'd like you, if you would, to explain to our listeners how your career path led you to be counselling and consulting in this area. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Alison, for inviting me on. I've been looking forward to this. Yes, certainly I've had a changing career because I actually graduated in 96 and started my first career in 1997 in recruitment. So I joined Computer Futures back in the day of uh, fax machines, posting out company brochures, so very, very different. And um, I stayed there for a period of eight years before transitioning over to become an in-house recruitment manager, which I did for a period of eight years. So there's clearly an eight-year thing. And then I set up my own recruitment business, providing in-house recruitment to technology startups. And um, had been doing that very happily, very much enjoying that, had wonderful clients. But then through a health scare that at the time I I felt I had a heart attack, I um, was collapsed on the floor. My husband had to call 999 and he thought that he'd lost me. And um, fortunately, it wasn't that. But um, it led to a period of three years where I was just sick a lot. I was exhausted. I was gaining weight. And I just kind of thought that was life in your 40s. I was 42 at that point and just kind of got used to feeling a bit rubbish until I was found collapsed again and decided I needed to figure out what was going on. So um, started working with a health coach, which I, to be honest, didn't know a thing about what that meant. Just thought, okay, let's give that a go. She talked to me about stress, which I'd never really thought about before during sort of all of my careers. Of course, you have moments of stress, but I just used the word without really understanding the sort of the science behind it. And as soon as she explained that, it was just an absolute moment of clarity, of understanding why I was getting sick, exhausted, sort of having a terrible memory, having kind of lack of focus. She guided me. I made some sort of significant but relatively simple changes. And then I decided that actually I wanted to support other people to do that. So decided to retrain to become a health coach and now do both one-to-one coaching and work with corporates as well to, to help their teams. And a lot of that is with recruitment businesses because of having over 20 years experience in the industry. I understand the lifestyles. I understand the challenges. I understand sort of how amazing a career it can be, but also the chat sort of how difficult it can be 
So that's where I wanted to go next, actually. I was particularly interested about why this this whole topic has taken flight in the recruitment sector, particularly, I think. What is it about the recruitment arena? Is it the job? Is it the kind of people that we hire? Or a mixture of the, both that creates a, a risky system, if you will. So, so what is it that makes um, mental health and well-being particularly an issue here? I think it's a combination of factors. I think the first and the most obvious is that recruitment is a sales job. It is target driven. But unlike a lot of sales jobs where you would be selling a product, so you only actually have to sell to one side. So if you're selling a car, the car has no choices to where it's going. Whereas in recruitment, you're selling to to client and candidate. So I think that not only is it difficult because it's sales, but it's heightened because of the fact that you have to get both parties to be happy and in agreement. So I think there's that fact. I also think um, often the type of people that have careers in recruitment are sort of highly ambitious, driven, so want to achieve, so put a lot of pressure on themselves. So I think there's pressure coming from from the career itself, but also from the individuals and whether that's they've got financial things that they want to achieve or whether that's just they've got career ambitions. There's that drive to, to work hard, work long hours. And then when something doesn't go to plan, so a dropout happens or many of the other things that can go wrong in recruitment, there's then that self-doubt. So I think it's a very rewarding, but it is a challenging career to be in. Yes. You mentioned there about young people with lots of ambitions. We have a very young age profile across the industry as a whole, myself accepted. And, um, you know, there's very often a number of people taking on responsibilities and expectations that they are unlikely to be asked to shoulder in most other industries, let's face it, yeah? So very often staff management and accountability for financial achievement will be coming to them on a bigger scale or much earlier in their career than many others. Is that a factor, do you think? Yeah, absolutely, because I was um, just 21 when I got into the industry and was a very high performer very quickly. So then got promoted up to management and found it very, very difficult. I'm not a natural manager, but fortunately, because of my amazing boss and how comfortable I felt, I was able to sort of ask her, could I be demoted? Because I realized that I really just wanted to be an amazing recruiter and earn a lot of money. I didn't want to build a team. And I think lots of people find themselves in sort of fast promoting positions, which is wonderful, but maybe they're not quite ready and they don't know how to then admit that they're not ready for that. So it was a a sort of a hard conversation for me to have, but it, it worked out for the better because I then went back to just recruiting and stayed there for eight years, whereas I probably wouldn't have lasted very long there if they kept me in a management role. So I, I definitely agree that the people that are really good do tend to get fast promoted. And also from the financial point, you can be making money very quickly, but then you start to invest, you, you buy your first flat or you have a nice car and suddenly you've got these financial commitments that you need to keep earning those high amounts of money to be able to afford. Yeah, that's sometimes where there is the potential for a conflict of interest, really, between the business owner and it was complicated, isn't it? The business owner and the member of staff who may 
feel that their the success has been defined for them and that they're on a you know like one of those walkways that's one directional <laughs> and there's a path that they can't get off if they want to retain their role and and the success and the respect that they've achieved in recruitment it can be it can be very difficult to have the the kind of conversation you've just described now that said I work with a lot of recruitment business owners and directors. They're very keen to support well-being because they recognize that if you're going to have people in your business for a long time and at a most basic level get return on investment on those workers, then they need to adjust around them and look after their well-being not just their performance. So thinking about this, I often get involved in conversations about uh, changes that those business owners can make, which are fair to all their staff, which won't damage productivity, but will reflect their genuine concern for their staff's well-being. One of the things that I've noticed listening to a lot of podcasts and reading blogs and so forth about mental health is that a lot of them aren't particularly actionable from a business owner's point of view. So it's it's relatively easy for us to talk about being more considerate, more curious, more flexible. But, you know, actually within the context of running a business, what many business owners need is, is well, what is the doing here? What is the actionable thing? So I'd like to flip that back to you, Michelle. What actionable changes would you suggest many recruitment business owners could make? And I completely agree with that. I think that it is a difficult one because people think I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And this is why I actually got involved in the Mental Health and Recruitment Initiative 11 months ago now. And I actually work as an ambassador in, in that project because I think it's really important for businesses, firstly, to understand that there is a, is a challenge um, and there was a report that was done, I think there was 2,300 people actually answered the survey, which made it very clear that there, there are challenges for people's mental well-being who work in recruitment. But then it is about how it becomes actionable. This is the reason that the mental health and recruitment team are working together to give companies and recruitment businesses the information as to what they can actually do moving forward. So how do you actually start? And that's certainly something I've been doing a lot with businesses because there are things like employee assistance programs, which, yes, they seem like a good idea. The reality of that is, I think the stat is 87% of sort of people have never used one. I spoke to a gentleman um, the other day and actually he'd tried five times to have a conversation with someone on his EAP and had given up. And that's why I've started working really closely with companies to actually develop something a lot more personal so that whether that starts off with companies having a talk on what actually is mental health or what is stress, anxiety, burnout, whatever the challenges people might be facing, giving them practical things to do from sort of exercising, maybe reducing the amount of caffeine they're having, taking breaks during the day, better planning their day, doing some breathing lots and lots of different tips. But then there are the points where some people actually need to have a one-to-one -one conversation with someone about how they're feeling and make the solution very personal to them. So it is, I think, a challenge for businesses because when you're dealing with people, everybody is unique. Everyone has their own 
challenges at work, but also outside of work. And this isn't about trying to turn recruitment into an easy job. That isn't about this at all. This is about helping people be as resilient and mentally strong as they can be to be high performers um, and achieve what they want and what the business wants them to. That's a really important distinction to make, isn't it? Because I think those who are, should we say, a bit cynical about mental health will, you know, very often say, well, look, it, it is a tough job. You need a certain mindset and motivation to do it. And we cannot endlessly bend over backwards. Now, during the pandemic, I think many most managers became more aware of their team's personal circumstances than they've ever been before, not just by seeing their kids and their pets in the background on Zoom. <laughs> you know, how, pe- how people reacted to that shift. Some people, you know, absolutely blossomed from working from home and, and, and others obviously didn't do, you know, quite so well. So managers and leaders are being asked to be all things to all people. You know, they are being asked to be mental health experts. They're being asked sometimes to be financial counsellors. They are relationship managers, you know, technical support. You know, the list goes on and on. Just you're talking about employee assistance programmes brought to mind. The notion that there are limits to what a manager can do in terms of helping people with mental health. In your view, what kind of things should they look out for if somebody isn't approaching them and saying, talk to me? And what should they actually you know, move to a professional? Yeah, absolutely. And I've had that quite a few times recently where a business leader has contacted me and said, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to help this person. And at which point I found out a little bit more and then said, look, let me have a, a conversation with them to see how they're actually feeling um, as to whether I can support them or whether it needs to go to sort of someone much more experienced, maybe the Samaritans or Calm or Mind, or there's a a lot of different um, organisations to provide that level of support. And the key thing, I think, is for sort of business leaders who, who, who know their staff, look out for the changes. So if someone is usually very outgoing and they suddenly become quite quiet or the reverse if someone is normally quite sort of introverted and suddenly they become quite extroverted it's hard when this is changing as people are going back into offices but some of the things you might notice is sort of how people care about their appearance or their overall sort of behaviors they might suddenly become a a new nervous hair twiddle or someone picking at their fingers that it's hard to notice on zoom but if you're sat next to someone and you suddenly start noticing some different behaviors they're the people that if they're not coming forward and asking for your help or wanting to speak to you that it's worth just checking in but I'd also say you need to check in with all of your team and whether this is the business owner or whether this is the team leads, however companies divide up. Checking in regularly and it's that whole thing that is now being talked a lot about since the Roman Kemp BBC documentary about ask twice. So when you ask someone, are you okay? Once they tend to say, yes, I'm fine. When you ask them twice, you might get actually the honest answer. So having regular check-ins with people but also I think it's really important for the business owner and the team leaders to have support so a lot of the work I do is actually at at that level to make sure that they're okay because often the things that they might learn for their own well-being they can then help pass on down through their teams as well. 
What you've just described there is about very much noticing things on an individual level, ticks, changes of appearance, that kind of thing. And I, I totally get it. And, and obviously, mental health and well-being is experienced at an individual level. However, if I'm a business owner, there are some things I cannot fairly adapt for every individual. Yeah, I can't run a business effectively, you know, saying anyone can pick whatever hour working hours they want, you know, change their jobs and, and so forth. So are there any policy level things that you think at a, a company level, if somebody changed their policy, it would overall have a positive effect on the well-being of their staff? It is a really difficult one, which we're all having to consider more than ever now prior to sort of COVID, we wouldn't have been having the conversations about working from home or flexible working across the board. They were more ad hoc one-offs, maybe if there was a sort of a a mum returning to work who needed flexible hours, but everybody else, it was fairly standard. Whereas now the businesses that I'm talking to are trying to work out what's the best way. And some of the businesses, their rule is you have to be in the office five days a week because that works for the team that they've got. Maybe they've got a younger team that don't want to be working at home because they don't want to be working in their bedroom or sort of with their parents (laughs) popping in. But then you've got other businesses that have got a maturer team who actually do want to work at home. Maybe they've got a bit of a longer commute because they've moved out of the city. I think you do have to look at the, the overall of your team, but also understanding that there's going to be some people that aren't necessarily going to fit into exactly the rules that you put across the board. And then that would be about an an individual conversation with them as to whether that works or not. I know David Stone, he runs a recruitment business in Hove and he introduced the four-day working week, which this was before COVID and this was quite an industry shocker, I think. They were like, what do you mean, recruitment, four days? And it's been absolutely brilliant for him. And if someone does have to do a bit of work on the Friday, they do it, but they're just not expected to be in an office. And if they want to go away for the weekend when you're allowed to do that, then they can. So that was a decision initially that was great for his lifestyle, but has been brilliant for his team and also a fantastic way of attracting people to work for his business. So very, very smart move, not only in terms of keeping his current team happy, but being able to grow the team. I think there are different factors to consider when you are putting policies in place. There are always going to be potentially some people who it might not be the right career for. And I always say to when I speak to a business owner about coaching their teams, I have that honest conversation that there could be someone that I speak to that actually recruitment just isn't for them, whether that is their reason for doing it isn't big enough, whether their interest in doing it, whether their comfort in doing a sales job. Certainly when I joined recruitment, I didn't even realize it was a sales job. I just got fortunate that I happened to be good at it. But there will be people who will join the industry and decide it's not for them. And that's also okay. That's going to happen. We can't expect it to be perfect. And There are people who during COVID have moved out of the industry, whether they've moved into software sales, whether they've gone into in-house recruitment, or in my case, sort of moved completely out of it into into coaching. But I think that's, that's an okay thing to happen. That's just life. 
Yes, it isn't going to work for absolutely everybody, is it? And of course, the recruitment environment is not one that just stays the same. So some people who joined the industry and did fine in, for example, a role that was largely resourcing, may find it much more tricky when the market conditions switch and they've got to do a lot more proactive business development. Okay, so we we just touched there on the issue that sometimes you can't make it work. And before we close off the point about policy, I do I just want to draw attention to the fact that you described someone who'd switched to a four-day week model. And that's great for all the people who are around and trusted and understand exactly what's, you know, what's expected of them. It makes sense, however, to think through your policies when you make a change like that and to make expectations really clear, doesn't it? Because what was a privilege very rapidly becomes a right in most people's minds. And you can end up with a business that goes from, you know, down to making four fifths of the profit that it made, unless you're very careful. So it always makes sense to have a look at your policies and and HR processes if you're making a change like that. Let's just dig a little bit deeper on, on some of the challenges around this. We all want to be good bosses. We want to work in great companies and we want to look after our well-being. There are occasionally people who are a little bit unclear about well, what what is a mental health issue and what is stress and anxiety that actually requires the employer to do something and what is just someone feeling a bit meh that day <laughs> so i, I um, work with lots of businesses who have experienced this they've experienced people who quite frankly they know from social media have got a hangover <laughs> and who are then phoning in and saying oh i need a mental health day so that's a very real thing Let, let's just address that michelle what's your advice i think it is very interesting and i think social media catches people out so often And I know of companies that introduce a duvet day once a quarter. So if you wake up and you've got a hangover or you just don't feel like it today, you can phone in. And as long as there isn't a business critical reason why you must be in the office, you can take that day. And I actually really like the idea of that because then it means people are not having to almost make up sort of serious reasons why they can't come in. It's okay just to say, yeah, I had a little bit too much to drink on the over the bank holiday weekend. And by giving people that option that it's there, it's almost like pick and choose when you take your duvet day wisely. But I, I agree, there will always be the sort of somebody that will take advantage. And my advice at that point would be, firstly, if you're not trusting your team, then you probably have got a bigger, a bigger problem. And if it's a particular person, then you're going to want to be working closely to build trust with them and understanding why there isn't a trust. But if you are feeling like someone is maybe taking a bit of advantage, having a conversation with them, or maybe getting them a bit of support, because maybe if they are drinking a bit too much, a bit too regularly, there might be something actually going on as to why they're doing that. And they might need a bit of support to sort of get them a bit back on track. So I do think it is a difficult one. And I think business owners are are very concerned about not allowing people the time. And then that may be leading to something kind of um, terrible happening. But at the same time, they are running businesses and they have got salaries to pay and business to, to sort of win. So I think it's about taking the individual situation. And I did actually have it recently where 
Um, I got a phone call saying, I'm worried about a member of my staff. I called them. We had a, a good conversation. And then I followed up with the business owner afterwards. I didn't discuss anything we discussed because everything that I talk about is confidential. But I just said, oh, how is the person? There was some concerns about sort of how they were and sort of what was genuine and what wasn't genuine. But at that point, I think that's the decision about is the person right for the team if you don't trust them and you feel that they're lying to you. But at the same time, you want to make sure that really is the case, because obviously, if there is something seriously wrong with them, you want to provide them with as much support as possible. Yeah, I have some practical advice for any listeners on this one. It can be very useful if your your HR system allows you, or you can do it um, manually, to actually keep a track on people's Bradford score. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with the Bradford factor, it's a simple formula that gives a score based not only on the amount of absence that someone has taken, but the frequency and pattern of it. So obviously, if you've got more Mondays off, you know, you could have five Mondays off or one week off for sickness. The five Mondays gives us more concern. And if you pick a score at which you might be concerned about people's, you know, general well-being and say, doesn't matter what the, the situation or our suspicions are, let's have a review meeting that is in effect triggered by someone hitting that score, then you haven't discriminated or picked on anybody. But the investigation, of course, still needs to take account of somebody's individual circumstances and have something actionable. Just revisiting something that you said earlier, Michelle, you said at the top of this, you said, what is anxiety? What is stress? What is poor mental health? Can you just talk us through how you would make that assessment? So, for example, if somebody came into my office and said, I'll be taking the rest of this week off because I've broken my leg. Well, naturally, I would expect there to be a doctor's note and possibly a cast on their leg. And I would certainly have expected them to have been along to A&E. In other words, they haven't self-diagnosed that broken leg. Now, things are a bit different with mental health, aren't they? So if someone says, I can't work because of my anxiety, my stress, whatever, what would your advice be to the manager receiving that notification if there's no independent diagnosis? Yes, absolutely. I think with that, if you're seeing the person in person, so they're actually have walked into your office and had that conversation you may well expect to have someone in tears. You may well expect to have someone who is very agitated so that as you start to get more and more anxious and stressed, your heart rate will increase, your ability to even sort of communicate clearly will change because the part of your brain where you have rational thinking and make decisions switches off. So you might find that actually even being able to talk about how you're feeling in a clear way might not be there like it would usually be. So you would potentially still see some physical changes, even though the issue is is sort of mental. That's not always the case. And there's a, a fantastic book that I read to really understand a bit more about it all. It's by a chap called Matt Haig, and it's called Reasons to Stay Alive. And there's a quote in it which just really resonated, which was trying to explain depression to someone who hasn't suffered is like trying to explain earth to an alien. And my husband actually asked me to read the book because he openly talks about sort of his challenges over the years and how he manages them. 
I know when he's he's struggling, he if he's having what we refer to as a blue day, his whole persona is different. His tone of voice is different. There's just a, a sadness about him on those days. So it's like, right, that's when we almost go into action of he needs to get out for a run. He needs to get out, get some fresh air. He needs to sort of do some breathing. He needs to take a bit of time. There is a high chance that there would be some things that you would see would be different in that person. Certainly sort of yesterday, I was feeling very, very tired and I was doing my yoga class and it's on Zoom. Just on Zoom, my instructor could tell I wasn't sort of fully in, in the right space. Just I wasn't talking as much. I'm usually, as you can see, really chatty. And I was just actually really quiet. I would think unless it was a very new member of the team that you didn't know very well, you would still see some differences in the person. If they walk in and there's no difference at all, then to a certain point, you're having to make a judgment on what you feel is the right thing to do at that point. And it might be potentially that you send them home for the rest of the day and then say, let's talk tomorrow and see how you're feeling. But also trying to understand how they feel and is there anything particular that's triggered it? Maybe they've had a difficult call with a client and really they just need to go and have a bit of a walk around the block. When I was at Computer Futures, when one of the girls disappeared off into the toilet, upset, all of the girls would follow. <laughs> okay. So sometimes people just need a hug and just need to be told that sort of even if a candidate hasn't taken the offer or the client has done sort of something challenging, that that's okay. And to sort of give the person a hug and tell them that it's all right, they're going to sort of the next placement will come in or whatever it might be. Yes, it's not a bad thing to bear in mind that it's the silent ones that you actually have to look out for. The people who actually show some external sign of their emotional state, you know, are inviting help in a way, aren't they, even at a subconscious level. The very silent, those who say, no, I'm fine, no, I'm fine, and don't communicate anything, also need that time created for them where, as you said earlier, and it's a really good phrase to remember, is ask always ask twice so michelle you've mentioned a couple of really useful sources there the book by matt haig reasons to stay alive you mentioned calm and mind calm is the campaign against living miserably and it's a suicide prevention charity mind i must admit i don't know if that is an acronym for something but that's another mental health support charity there's obviously the samaritans People sort of very much feel like they don't know where to turn. So it's for people to to know that there are people out there who will listen. There are people that they can turn to if they don't feel that they've got a friend, a family member, a work colleague to actually have a conversation with. And I think particularly with the campaign against living miserably, they do a lot of support for men's mental health because the numbers of, of men that are struggling is just far too high. And obviously, there's a lot of men working in recruitment. There's a lot of men who are not talking about how they feel, um, who do keep quiet, who are putting on a brave face. So it's just to let them know that there are people out there to support them if they don't feel they've got that immediate support or they want to talk to somebody that they know. They want to talk to someone independent so that they aren't concerned about confidentiality or judgment. 
Okay. So what I'm hearing from this for managers and leaders in recruitment is that the most important thing that they can do is to notice their people. And, you know, there there will be issues that are beyond that manager to resolve. And that's important to recognise, isn't it? But there are there are lots of places that they can refer people to for help. The most important thing is just to notice and acknowledge in the first instance and then work out your plan. If you are looking at policies, bear in mind, you know, they need to be clear. Expectations need to be clear. And that a policy that works exceptionally well in one recruitment business may not in another. And be aware that mental health issues often have physical signs. Anything else you'd add by way of a, a sum up there, Michelle? Yep, I think that's all spot on. I'd also suggest that um, there's a mental health first aid training. It's not particularly expensive. And I would suggest definitely having, depending on the size of the business, but having one, two, three people that have been through that course. It's really interesting. It's a real eye-opener into all of the different struggles that people might be facing, ways to recognize them. It's not about trying to solve them for people. That's not at all what the the training is about. That's about then if you're seriously concerned about someone, your job is to get them to someone who is qualified to support. I think having sort of those within your business is a really positive, but on the side of that, I would say make sure that the people that you put through that training, if you are going to do it, are people that are approachable because it's giving someone a lot of responsibility to be a mental health first aider. So you need to ensure that people are going to feel comfortable going to talk to them, trusting them if they have got a challenge. But that would be certainly something that I would add in there as well. Okay, excellent. So for any of our listeners who'd like to discuss how you might be able to support their business, Michelle, how should they contact you? Absolutely. So my website is nice and simple. It's michelleflynncoaching.com. So you can contact me through there. I do, as I said, I do corporate talks. There's um, a list of them on my website, everything from stress and anxiety through to mojo and resilience. I also do one-to-one and then build out personalized employee assistance programs for businesses as well that is very individual to what their team needs. And it's taking the holistic approach because every part of our life is completely connected. So if someone is struggling in their relationships out of work, that's going to impact their jobs. If someone isn't sleeping, that is then going to impact whether they exercise. So I think often people assume that it's find one problem and that will solve it, whereas actually things are often so connected with each other. So it's about helping people find that balance and find find joy again. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Michelle. So for regular listeners, we'll know that recruitment leadership is very much about a holistic approach to looking at your business. And so mental health and well-being is one part of the kaleidoscope of issues that I work with. I'm Alison Humphreys. You can contact me on alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk. And my business is about putting the macroscope, if you will, on your recruitment business to help you build a sustainable, authentic and profitable recruitment business all the way through to successful trade sales. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Um, Look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.